Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lucia Coulter. Lucia studied medicine at Cambridge University, and during her studies, published some peer-reviewed research on public health, taught microbiology and parasitology, and gained clinical experience in Sierra Leone. In 2020, uh, Lucia made a big career change and went through Charity Entrepreneurship's incubation program in London. This led her to found Lead Exposure Elimination Project, or LEAP, a health policy nonprofit working to reduce childhood lead exposure, uh, no great surprise there, uh, in low- and middle-income countries. How bad lead is. Yeah, so lead is extremely toxic. One way to think about why is that basically it, it mimics calcium and other metal ions that serve these essential functions in pretty much every part of the body. And uh, we've evolved for the vast majority of our history in an environment where lead was buried in the earth. And so our cells are just not well adapted to tolerate any of this interference and it interrupts many different subcellular processes. And that affects pretty much every organ system. So we could think about it in terms of like, what would the impact be on the average child in a low middle income country? The average child in a low or middle income country has a blood level of around five micrograms per deciliter. And that's high enough to cause like health, educational and um, economic impacts. Um, so a child with that blood lead level would have a reduction in IQ anywhere from around like one to six IQ points, depending on like which analysis you you take. Um, and then that in turn will affect their future earning potential. They'll also have reduced educational attainment. There was a recent analysis by the Center for Global Development that pretty conservatively concluded that that would be equivalent to around uh, one year of lost schooling. And then it also has causes an increased likelihood of cardiovascular disease and mortality from cardiovascular disease. And that could be as high as a relative risk of uh, around 1.5 at the average level of lead exposure um, that children have in low-middle-income countries. That's according to a a recent analysis of, of US data. And then on top of all of that, it increases risk of kidney disease, anemia, uh, fetal health problems, behavioral disorders, ADHD, um, and possibly even mental health problems and dementia. Yeah. Yeah. So so one thing is lead, because we evolved for so long in an environment where lead was not present, we also don't have any bodily process for removing lead. Uh, So it tends to just hang around in the body for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it ends up in all kinds of different tissues. I think in adults, often it can end up in the bones and it tends to hang around there a long time and then gradually leach out over decades even. Yeah, But it's not something that you just consume and then uh, pee out uh, very quickly. It it hangs around for a long time. And as you're saying, it, it mimics other metal ions that we do need to use. And so it interferes with all kinds of different enzymes throughout the body that are doing just the basic work of a cell. It's getting in there and just screwing them up constantly. It's also like mimicking calcium ions in the brain. So it gets into the brain and then it screws up the ability to send signals between neurons. And that's particularly dangerous when children are very young and their brains are developing because that's such like a complex and delicate process, which is why it has such a severe impact on young children by impacting the way that their their brains are forming and all those neurons are connecting in the very early years. How many times more damage lead is doing in low- and middle-income countries? If I understand correctly, 
40 years ago, about 90% of people's exposure to lead in rich countries, at least, was coming via leaded petrol, which mm-hmm. has now been almost completely eliminated uh, everywhere. Uh, well, I guess except for Avgas. This is one, one crazy yeah. thing that I learned is that we haven't figured out a way to run planes safely without putting lead in the petrol there, uh, which is still now a major, is one of the now the top reasons that people still get exposed to lead in countries like the UK or, or, the, or the US. But anyway, yeah, as a result of getting rid of leaded gasoline, we've seen a massive decrease in lead levels in children in the, in the US by around 90% since the late 70s and probably something in that ballpark for the UK and Australia. Although I think the data on that is kind of surprisingly rickety. I, it was a little bit hard to find any, any good systematic studies of that uh, recent, in recent years. But an interesting thing is that the research suggests that most damage is done by the first bits of lead that you get exposed to. It's actually kind of the, the first milligram that's doing the most damage per milligram. And then, and then you get kind of gradually declining damage, which is kind of intuitive. But I, I suppose the mechanism might be that as you get exposed to more and more lead, kind of all the damage that can be done by lead <laughs> specifically has already been done. Uh, and it kind of runs out of low-hanging fruit <laughs> to harm you even more. Yeah. Anyway, if that's the case, the damage that lead is, is doing to people's health, even in rich countries where, where the exposure levels have been reduced 90%, could still be really quite meaningful. And it's not necessarily enough to reduce it 90%. You, you really want to reduce it by more like 99 or 99.9% uh, in order to feel comfortable that, that we've done enough. And one thing I'll just note is that, you know, this is my recall, all of the news coverage of Flint, Michigan, a couple of years ago, where they screwed up something about their water supply and children were getting exposed to lead above the US's per- permitted limits. But the, the, the blood lead levels uh, that led to the, the declaration of a national emergency in the US are just completely standard in, in India. There, there they had, I think, 5% of the children in that city had uh, blood lead levels above 5. Mm. But I think two-thirds of children in India have that level of, of lead in their blood. So, and, you know, and that's just regarded as completely normal in a yeah. matter of course. It's, it's kind of crazy. Anyway, that, that, that is a huge lead into the question of how many uh, times more damage is lead doing in countries that LEAP operates in as opposed to countries like the US or UK where, where most listeners live? Yeah. It's it's really crazy, that statistic. So LEAP operates in low middle income countries and 95% of the global burden of lead poisoning, roughly, is concentrated in low middle income countries. So yeah, so in um, low middle income countries, the average blood level is around five micrograms per deciliter, which is classified as lead poisoning. So like on average, almost children have lead poisoning. And in high income countries, the average childhood blood lead level is around one microgram per deciliter. Mm. It's a bit lower than that in the US. And like you say, the data is like not amazing anywhere on this, but it's about five times lower in high income countries. And the, the Flint, Michigan example is really stark. I think that was a huge crisis, having 5% of children in Flint, Michigan with, with lead poisoning. But the fact that just every single day, 50% of children in low and middle income countries have that level of lead poisoning um, is really, really concerning, really troubling. Why hasn't this problem already been solved? We've known for at least 100 years that lead is poisonous. Um, I guess we can kind of see that because France banned leaded paint in 1909. Uh, I think they were one of the first countries to do it. But nonetheless, they thought it was sufficiently dodgy that there was lead going in paint in houses that they banned it 110 years ago. And apparently even the ancient Romans suspected that lead was bad for you. I guess they, they probably didn't have, you know, gold standard randomized controlled trials here, but uh, they probably noticed that people who worked in lead mines ended up ext- with extreme health problems and, uh, and, and figured out that uh, lead, lead was probably bad for you. Is there a simple reason why this problem hasn't already been solved? That Why didn't we know in the 19th century to stop adding lead to stuff that people were going to be eating? I think it's, it's a good question. I, I think it's probably not that simple an answer. I think to start with, lead is just a really useful metal. It's abundant, it's malleable, it's durable, and it, its compounds make 
loads of really helpful things like strong lasers, bright pigments, anti-knocking fuels. Um, I think in the 20s, the industry in the US described um, lead as a gift from God because it's just like <laughs> such a great, such a great thing. So I think like people will just like keep using it unless they aren't able to, unless they're like strongly incentivized not to. I think another reason is that there is extremely low awareness of both the prevalence of lead poisoning, the harms of lead poisoning, and the um, sources of exposure. Low awareness kind of generally, but also among like important decision makers, important institutions, and low middle income country governments and funders. I guess that leads to the question, like, what, why is the awareness so low? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe this is a um, something yeah. that a historian should be looking into. Yeah. Is understanding, you know, what were like, maybe they could find some mentions in parliamentary records or something mm. from the nineteenth century of people raising the question of uh, whether lead was safe. That, there must have been some yeah. stuff written about it uh, if if it was banned in France in nineteen oh nine. But why is it that that didn't win the day? Why is it that uh, industry that wanted to add lead to things won out the the debate? Yeah, I, I always wonder if if one part of it is just like the the really like invisible nature of, of lead as a, as a poison. I mean, of course, impact aren't invisible, millions of, of deaths and, and trillions of dollars in, in lost income. But the fact that lead is the cause is not apparent. It's not apparent when you're being exposed to the lead, like the paint just looks like any other paint. The cookware looks like any other kind of cookware. And also, if you are suffering the effects of lead poisoning, you know, if you have cognitive impairment and, and heart disease, you're not going to think, oh, it was that lead it's exposure. Lead, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's just not going to be clear. I guess it's an issue yeah. with, we, t- we tend to treat specific uh, acute diseases and be very aware of that, but then everyone suffering some relatively small chronic impact just yeah. doesn't really rise to the level of anyone's notice and cause yeah. a public outcry. Yep, exactly. And and the symptoms aren't like specifically characteristic of the cause. It's not like, um, you know, malaria, you get cyclical fevers. It's like obviously something going on here. I think yeah. that's part of it as well. What LEAP set out to attempt in Malawi we were helping um, the Malawi Bureau of Standards, supporting them with testing capacity, updating their regulation to make it more enforceable, and making sure that like the right samples were being collected. It needs to be kind of coloured paints because they're much more likely to be to be leaded than white paints. And in the default of kind of globally for anyone doing kind of monitoring of a paint industry would be to just collect white paints. I see. Um, so you'd naturally miss miss lead in that. Um, so that's a bit of a process, and then industry typically is like unlikely to reformulate until they feel that there will be consequences hmm. so initial so did, did, did you call them up and say yeah, yeah i mean we spoke to them before we did the study okay and we said uh, you know are you aware of, of lead as an as an issue in paint and that sort of thing broadly they said that they were aware of it but that maybe some other manufacturers were doing it but but not them yeah. so then we come back with the results and we say oh there is a lot of lead in your paint and they're like oh, okay um, <laughs> um, and at like, that point we offer our support so we can help in quite a few ways we can give we have a paint technologist who's absolutely amazing who can give really detailed technical support with the switch um, we can help them find suppliers of the non-lead raw materials which can sometimes be a barrier because it's their usual suppliers might not necessarily supply these non-lead alternatives um, we also offer to retest their paints for them so they can be confident that they're lead free and that sort of thing so um, some of them engaged some of them didn't really some of them said to us like oh, i don't i don't really know does the Bureau of standards really have testing capacity do we really have to do this um and so we were like wow, yeah that's that's ballsy to be yeah. saying <laughs> yeah. okay sure you busted us but we yeah. don't think that you have the testing capacity to yeah. check again officially yeah exactly interesting well, were any of them mortified um 
not Sounds like no. Not not that was apparent to me. Mm. I mean, I don't know how they were feeling internally. Um, in like a professional context, you might not really like let yeah. on your real feelings about it. Yeah. I think that from the perspective of a manufacturer, they're only putting in a small amount of lead. One mm. percent intuitively oh, doesn't feel like that much, right? It's just a splash of lead. Yeah. Just a little bit. It's just a tad. <laughs> so yeah, so I think it's not intuitive like how bad that could be. Like mm. one one way of, of communicating it is that if you had like a little sugar sachet, you know, the type that you would get at a cafe to put in your coffee, if that was filled with lead dust and you sprinkled it across an area the size of an American football field, that level of lead loading um, would be sufficient to cause lead poisoning if a child spent time in that environment. I see. So a very, very small amount of lead can have these really toxic effects. And yeah. that's not intuitive. That's pretty surprising. So I think that's probably how people think about it. But often manufacturers, in in, our, in some of our experience, will move really quickly. Like sometimes days after we show them the results, they've ordered their non-lead alternative ingredients. Lead paint versus other sources of lead. There are many different sources of lead exposure in low middle income countries. Paint, we've talked about Others include like aluminum cookware, um, lead glazed ceramics, cosmetics, uh, lead adulterated spices, water systems, things like lead acid battery recycling, mining, recycling. There are probably others too that we're not, we don't even really know about yet. And we don't really know like which exposures are which most significant in which countries or the relative contribution of, of different sources in different areas. And there's there's a big lack of data and it does look like it varies a lot geographically, but we, there, there's enough to make some educated guesses. As to why we're focused on paint, it's because it seems like a widespread, important source of exposure that's also unusually tractable um, and also very neglected. I think the tractability is probably a really important factor and possibly more differentiating than those others. You know, we know that with a little bit of support, low income country governments can get lead paint off the market, which is like a big reason why it's it's kind of so cost effective to work on. Yeah. yeah. Let's just uh, pause again on what those other sources are. Okay. Mm. So there's like lead acid batteries from cars. There's yeah. people who are doing uh, like informal recycling of those, like, exactly. I assume in pretty poor areas. And yeah. of course, if you're involved in that, that's a massive exposure of lead for you. Yeah. And I guess or it ends up in the soil. Nearby. Yeah. If you live nearby. Okay. Yeah. So that's going to be concentrated in particular locations, but then very severe in those, in those spots. Exactly. Then I did not know this until recently, but there's lead put in sometimes in crockery that people are eating off of. Mm -hmm. And you're saying there's lead glazers. So sometimes you you put colorful things, colorful decorations onto, uh, you know, bowls that people are eating out of. And that can have very high concentrations of lead in it. Yeah. So so the the paint on the the kind of paint put on um, bowls or whatever, that could have very high concentrations of lead, but also just the normal glaze that's used to like seal a piece of pottery, like just the normal ceramic that often has very high levels of lead. It can be like sealed and fired at high temperatures and and done in a way that it means that the lead doesn't leach into the foods very much. But in many low and middle-income countries, it's done in a way where it does leach into the food a lot. So in in South America and Latin America, that's that's been a big problem, probably also in a number of other regions as well. But that, that people haven't even identified that it's an issue yet. What if we had cheap lead tests? Okay, a different angle on how to get a really big systemic change here. How much does it cost to test for lead in someone's blood? Or in a, oh, I guess we said it was $15 or so for a, for a sample of paint. $15, yeah. Uh, and for, for, a, for a person's blood sample, how much? 
It's probably similar. Probably you could get it at around that price. Okay. Yeah. How much of a game changer would it be to have a way of easily and really cheaply measuring lead in in blood or in objects or in paint? What if you could do it for a dollar or less? Yeah, that would be huge. Okay. That would be a game changer. So if you could measure the lead content of objects like paint or, or other sources of exposure cheaply, accurately, and also in like a really kind of low, low tech kind of simple, simple, easy way, that would be like huge for the government testing capacity problem. Like you could imagine, you know, like this lead gun that we have here, if a government regulatory authority could have one of those and it wasn't going to, it was going to be accurate and it wasn't going to break, they could, you know, just go around testing those things and enforce on the basis of it. So I think that would be a real game changer. There is work to try and get these portable XRF devices, Mm. try and figure out like with what method can the result be accurate enough that it could be used for enforcement by like a low middle income country government. So we've been, we were talking just like um, over the last few weeks with with Stanford University and Mercer University, where they've been working on methods to get accurate results so that you can use XRF for um, paint testing. And um, they're hoping to get a project funded so that that can be like an approved method by these like international standards bodies. And then if it were an approved method, then governments could actually do that. And that would be pretty big, I think. Got it. So there are some ways of doing this that well, the, oh, there's ways that we could try to make it a bunch cheaper. Yeah. A current issue is that these things are kind of roughly accurate, but they're not nearly as precisely accurate. So governments are wary of imposing penalties on businesses or telling them they can't sell something based on the X-ray gun because it's yeah. not quite as precise as you're sending off to a lab for measurement. Yeah. And okay. also the X-ray guns are expensive. They can cost right. like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, yeah. but they're less expensive than the lab-based methods. Um, if, and if you, you test enough things. Yeah and, yeah. yeah. and you wouldn't need many of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're less expensive than the lab-based methods if you have to have your own testing equipment. If you can use an international lab, then that would be pretty low cost. Very brief opportunistic interventions. Okay, here's a completely different angle. Um, I suppose this is not actually a more systematic intervention. This is almost the opposite of that. Mm. I think doctors sometimes do what are called very brief opportunistic interventions where they just ask someone when they happen to be in uh, with another health issue, they happen to be in the GP office, are they interested in quitting smoking? And, and you know, and then if they say yes, then they then, then they help them out and instruct them on how to do that. Now, this doesn't prompt that many people to quit, uh, as you might imagine. It's very light touch intervention, but it can be really cost effective in terms of quits per hour of a physician time because it takes almost no effort per person to do this. So it's recommended that that physicians give this a go basically every time they get the chance. Now, maybe the same principle could work here. Could you just call up every paint factory basically in sub-Saharan Africa and say, do you know whether you use lead? Do you realize that this is extremely bad for children's health? Have you considered quitting lead? (laughs) Have you considered (laughs) putting something else in your paint? And then maybe 1% of them or 10% of them might just take, that might be all that's needed in order to prompt them to to take action. But what do do you reckon? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I don't think that's a crazy idea. The other thing you could do is like raw material suppliers, so like suppliers of non-alternatives, they provide free samples. So you could also say, and would you like to receive a free sample? Mm. Um, and then just send it to them. Yeah, I think you, usually it's, it is harder to engage with manufacturers when you don't when you haven't done a paint study and you don't have the results. And usually they won't act until kind of regulation is is on the horizon. But that's not always the case. And I think you'd, you'd get some hits. So o- over the past few months, we have started trying to engage manufacturers a lot earlier and it does seem promising. So, mm. but I yeah. think, you know, if anyone's got some, Free hours and just wants to start. 
cooling, <laughs> cooling up Gold cooling, yeah. Probably Our paint technicians are standing by yeah. to reformulate <laughs> your paint. Um, to be honest, I actually think this might be, I don't know, this is actually a good idea because it seems like within a, with a reasonable amount of money, you're on track to target, you know, all of the paint factories affect in, in, in large countries, at least in um, in sub-Saharan Africa, for mm-hmm. example, by, by doing these paint studies and, and uh, getting the government to take action. So maybe this would be, you know, I guess if you had one person who had only $10,000, uh, maybe this would be the best that they could do. But given that you have more people and more expertise and you are trying to scale, uh, this mm. probably seems less cost-effective to me. Yeah, maybe maybe for us. But if someone's if someone's got free time, yeah, then... yeah. 